triple dip recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to this Friday's edition of Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The dollar dropped versus major peers amid concern that the U.S. economic recovery is losing traction. Greek bonds slid and oil climbed for a sixth day. Bank of China says that the yuan may be in the IMF basket by next year. So Europe is in focus as Christine Lagarde refuses to give support to Greece missing payments to the IMF. We'll discuss the market impact of that with Andy Kosser of DZ Bank. And we'll get more from East Capital's Marcus Svedberg, who specializes in in emerging markets, both in Europe as well as the rest of the world. Then TARDIS Group's Zach Allen joins us to talk about what asset management companies are looking for when it comes to investing in human capital. And our regular Friday host is Richard Harris. Good morning. Good morning, Anita. So, Richard, is Greece back to a case of should I stay or should I go? (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, I like that. Um, uh, I think they definitely want to stay if they possibly can, because that's where the money tree is. But uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few weeks. And uh, fortunately, we've got Andy here from DZ Bank to help us. Yeah, and uh, they definitely want to stay. The question is, does everyone else want them to stay or will they let them stay? Well, I think there's a, uh, there is a big move within the European Union to try and keep it intact, because the alternatives are very uncertain. And the market's like uncertainty and European bureaucrats especially don't like uncertainty. Mm. The IMF has virtually ruled out granting Greece a payment delay as Athens continues to negotiate with its foreign creditors in an attempt to avoid defaulting on its debts. Now Greece is due to repay loans of about 1 billion euros to the IMF next month. The IMF chief is Christine Lagarde. Payment delays have not been granted by the board of the IMF in the last 30 years. And it was eventually granted to a couple of developing countries, and that delay was actually not followed by very productive results. So while the IMF is rule-based, all options are available to all countries. It's clearly not a course of action that would actually be recommendable. So once again, we're back to the same old question that everyone has been asking for months, which is if Greece exits, then what does it mean for the rest of the Eurozone? And with his assessment, here's the BBC's Robert Peston. Just like five years ago, Greece is on the brink of default. But 2015 is very different from 2010 in one important respect. Other Eurozone countries and the IMF are signalling they won't be panicked into rushing through another bailout. Greece won't necessarily leave the euro at the point that it misses a debt payment, but the government would be likely to follow the example of Cyprus and impose restrictions on the export of capital from the country to conserve as much cash as possible in a banking system that's too close to collapse for comfort. And the Greek government could create its own IOUs, a sort of parallel domestic currency interchangeable with euros, to pay its employees and trade creditors. 
In these dire circumstances, it wouldn't really be part of a proper monetary union. It wouldn't be a full member of the Eurozone, but it would still have the euro as legal tender. This would be a pretty ghastly scenario for the Greek people, who for a period would be much poorer and would struggle to obtain the things they need from abroad. But strikingly, the German government is putting it about that financial contagion to the rest of the Eurozone would be limited, although Washington has signalled its fears there'd be a blow to global growth. So, unlike at the time of the last general election, a Greek default won't bring on an immediate financial catastrophe, but it could set back a return to economic health for the Eurozone, which is our largest market, and their for damage our prosperity. European stocks fell nearly 1% under the weight of Greece's worsening financial predicament. But losses on Wall Street were modest. The Dow ended seven points lower at 18,105. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq also closed less than a tenth of a percent down at 2,104 and 5,007, respectively. Crude oil prices moved higher after news that tribal forces had taken control of a major oil terminal in Yemen. Brent crude rose uh, 66 cents to $63.98 a barrel. Now, Christine Lagarde also spoke with uh, Tom Keane of Bloomberg after her uh, earlier press conference, and she spoke of the new reality being a new mediocre. The new reality could be that new mediocre if policy makers, finance ministers and governors of central bank do not actually address uh, the risks that we have on the horizon. But that new reality could look, could look a lot better both today and tomorrow if they address those risks. And let me explain what I mean by today and Please. tomorrow. Today we are seeing recovery coming along, you know, forecast 3.5% mm. this year, 3.8% next year. But it's not strong enough. And it's very uneven. You mentioned Brazil. You mentioned China slowing down. You could have mentioned Russia being in negative territory as well. So we have a very diverse uh, picture at the moment with the advanced economies doing better and some of them a lot better. U.S. is strong and we see it staying strong Mm -hmm. next year. U.K. is doing quite well. Uh, The euro area at last is is picking up some growth. Uh, But we're also seeing in this emerging market world very slow movers, which is unusual because they were very fast and they still represent today 70% of the growth that we're expecting. So it's critical that they all work together. To Russia now, where President Putin has said that Western sanctions are an attempt to restrict his country's development rather than a response to fighting in Ukraine. He was speaking during his annual televised phone-in. I would say it's not probably worth expecting the sanctions to be lifted now because this is a purely political issue, although I think for some of our partners it's a strategic issue. This is not directly linked to events in Ukraine because the Minsk agreements now need to be implemented and we are doing everything that needs to be done, while the authorities in Kiev are not hiring to do so, and yet the sanctions against us remain in place. All right, let's uh, bring in our first guest this morning. Uh, that is Andrew Kosser, Chief Market Strategist at DZ Bank. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Good morning to you. So, Andrew, lots of activity being discussed in Europe. What do you make of all this? 
the Eurozone hasn't actually made a great deal of progress on resolving its big problem, which is Greece, in the last several years. The new government has come along. It wants to renegotiate the terms of its bailout. The rest of the Eurozone is not happy to do that. It's been in office for three months, and there's been very little progress. So the main Eurozone economy, things are looking better. Inflation is low. The ECB is undertaking quantitative easing at last. But they've still got this problem in Greece, and it's only going to be a slow recovery looking ahead to next year. Yet uh, everybody seems to be so bullish on European markets, at least as compared to the U.S. right now. It was partly a factor of European markets looking relatively cheap compared to others. Uh, Richard, you had a point? Y- y- yes, uh, I, I'm interested in the actual <coughs> mechanism of where Greece is going because they're looking for something like 747 million by the 12th of May. That, that's dollars. Are they going to be looking behind the sofa and uh, under the carpet for this sort of cash? And what happens if they actually can't gather it together? Could we actually see some kind of bridging loan? I wouldn't rule out a bridging loan because the political imperative to keep EMU together as a political rather than economic project is extremely high. Where they actually find some money is extremely difficult. I actually read a number this morning that their budget receipts were about one billion above where they're expected to be for the first three months of this year, which is good news, so that would roughly cover it. But uh, we've already seen they've taken desperate measures such as borrowing from the hospital pension fund to make previous repayments to the IMF. So it's really tight. It almost is a question of looking down the back of the sofa for what they can find. So uh, all of that's happening, but at the same time, uh, European growth looks as if it's picking up quite nicely. Are you confident that uh, we're on the right track now? confident that the Eurozone is on the right track after the last performance of the last few years? I wouldn't go quite that far. The DZ Bank forecast for GDP growth this year in the Eurozone is 1.3%, which is a relatively low figure uh, compared to most other developed economies, but it's still better than it has been in the recent past. Monetary policy settings are very loose, but fiscal policy remains relatively constrictive, and that's going to slow the recovery in the Eurozone. Andrew, what about the U.S.? I mean, word has it that the U.S. economy might be losing momentum. What do you think? The U.S. economy in the first part of the year probably has lost a little momentum, but it's mainly been down to factors such as weather, which is extremely hard to for statisticians to accurately quantify when they bring out their numbers. And there's also been a strike on the West, West Coast ports, which has uh, impeded the ability to handle cargo. So if you're a production facility and you have to import things from Japan and China, which come through the West Coast ports, and you haven't been able to get your supplies and you probably haven't been producing as much as you should, when that labour dispute is resolved, then the uh, supply chain will be functioning normally and you can ramp production back up. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, it's certainly as we move into the second quarter, weather should hopefully be less of an issue. What do you make of uh, the jump in oil prices these last few days? Is the supply glut on the cusp of easing? I wouldn't have thought so. Yemen itself is a very small producer of crude oil, and it's really a question of what Saudi Arabia wants to happen to the oil price, and there's no sign yet that they've altered their view that they will, as a strategic objective, seek to keep the price low to push other high-cost producers out of the market. Now, Andrew, on this side of the world, uh, the Shanghai Composite Index jumped 2.7% to 4,194, which is its highest close since March 2008. And the Hang Seng uh, China Enterprises Index of mainland shares listed in Hong Kong increased 1.7%. The local banks are saying that China will inject more cash into the banks. Do you agree? I think there's a good chance with the economy slowing that the 
People's Bank of China will be looking to ease monetary policy a little bit to try to keep seven point something uh, as the numbers that keep coming out in the GDP releases later in the year. Richard? We've seen a lot of reforms coming out of China recently. In fact, a, a flurry of them uh, uh, to do with the yuan. We've seen the reforms that actually push Hong Kong up. Um, is that the trend you think is happening, are going to continue? The pace of reform in China seems to be very much tied to political objectives, in my view. There is an underlying momentum to maintain a pace of reforms, but it seems to slow down and accelerate according to what uh, the political leadership requires, deems to be necessary. But the, the general trend is in the reform direction, and I think that will be continued this year, next year, and the year after. Well, there's talk coming from very senior levels that the renminbi might be convertible within, people are saying, even a few years. I think... When I arrived in Hong Kong in 2007, people were saying the renminbi might become convertible within just a few years. And eight years later, we're not quite there yet. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, yeah. One thing uh, that the Bank of China is saying is that the yuan might uh, win reserve status by being included in the IMF's basket of currencies by next year. How significant is this? If the IMF board were to take that decision, it would be extremely significant. Very few countries hold significant amounts of renminbi in their reserve, mainly because of the capital controls mean it's not uh, freely tradable. So if the IMF board puts it into the reserve basket, then people will be buying it on a grand scale to roughly match the basket in the portfolio allocations that they have. But as an economist, don't you think that any currency that's going to be a reserve currency, first of all, it has to earn its status, but more importantly, it needs to be convertible? I would completely agree with that comment, yes. And that's why I think it's going to be more than just a question of two or three years. All right, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's uh, Andrew Kasser, and he's Chief Market Strategist at DZ Bank. Well, the European story is certainly different from what it was last year. Now uh, you have a situation where growth has been revised up from a low base. You've got financial stimulus from the ECB driving bond prices down, even into negative territory. And uh, real economic stimulus from oil prices. Uh, Richard, you uh, were at the Fund Forum Asia this week, and you had a chance to talk with Marcus Svedberg of East Capital. Now, tell us, what markets does his company focus on, and are they at all affected by Europe? Yes, well, Marcus is the chief economist of East Capital. Their focus is really Eastern Europe, Russia, uh, and emerging and frontier markets. But it was very interesting that he was looking at optimism in Europe, continental Europe especially, um, but also talking about that being a trickle to Eastern Europe and other emerging markets and beyond. And uh, we've got some clips from him here. Yeah, I'm uh, curious to see what he says. The, the trend is normally we get more uh, capital coming into Europe, first through ETFs and then through dedicated funds, and then they're spilling over into the emerging parts of Europe, which are actually growing much, much rapidly, most of them. And what about Russia? Yeah, that's, that's the, often the odd man out. It often moves in different, different directions. And it's, as a big oil exporter, uh, you would assume that they are struggling a lot. And the economy is struggling. The economy is in recession. Inflation has been going up. But it was one of the best stock markets in the world in the first quarter. But wasn't that a dead cat bounce? It was a bounce, but it was also very much driven by a, a rebound of the ruble. But ruble normally reacts to oil price. But oil price was flat. 
so I think it was a repricing of risk because towards the end of last year, Russia was priced for almost for a default, for a disaster, and that didn't happen. It didn't happen with the economy, it didn't happen with oil price, and it didn't happen over Ukraine. Okay, so we've seen a bit of a bounce in Russia. We've seen Europe finally start to move. We've seen quite a few of the emerging markets move. Of course, India had its moment in the day last year, um, and now we're seeing China move. Is that going to be a general trend, do you think? I think the, the, there is support. There is a lot of global stimulus, uh, and emerging markets are, in fact, actually growing. I think the, the bearishness we have seen previously were perhaps a little bit overdone, especially over markets like, like China and perhaps uh, part of Eastern Europe. Uh, but you will also like to see a lot of divergence because investors do look at fundamentals, uh, and they are likely to di differentiate between emerging markets. So I don't think the asset class will move in sync. You will find a lot of opportunities in certain markets, and under other markets will do uh, uh, much worse. And you even see that within regions like Eastern Europe. Uh, let's drill down on a few of the markets you particularly like. First, uh, Eastern Europe, and then let's come back to Asia. Yeah. Uh, I, I still like Russia, but it's for value. It's not for growth. It's for value. Russia remains one of the cheapest uh, markets uh, in the world. Uh, it trades at a huge discount. So that's for value. Otherwise, I like the small frontier European markets. Uh, it gets very little attention globally. The Baltic states, Romania, Serbia, they, they, you have both growth and value. Uh, in Asia, India. Uh, the problem with India is that everyone loves India, uh, and there is a good, very compelling underlying macro story. The but have they had their run? Because often the markets move, then everyone gets excited, and then they rather slow down, a little bit like the US has done this year. Yeah, no, I think there, there is clearly a risk for, for, a, for a correction in the near term, especially as we're moving closer to the liftoff in, in the U.S. And even though they're not as vulnerable as, as they used to be, after this you know, massive inflow of capital, they, of course there could be a, be a correction. But I think that's more short-term you know, markets correcting rather than as people are changing their structural view in India. I think it's a great story. And what about Asia, coming back to our part of Asia? Uh, China is, is, is good, and I think what, what we're getting into now is that there's an economy slowing down, but it's, a, it's an orderly fashion, and, and you will get continuous small stimulus packages. And of course, financial markets love stimulus packages. So I think that will give support during this controlled slowdown of the economy. You will continuously get support or fuel for financial markets. So I think there is much more upside in, in places like China. But aren't we seeing a small amount of, uh, if you like, increase of in liquidity, a little bit of support from the government? And that is quite a lot of support to the market. Isn't that likely to lead to a bubble? You have this drip, drip, drip of slightly good news. The market's reacting strongly to it and reinforces it each time. No, I think obviously there is, there is a risk for, for bubbles, uh, not only in China, but globally, where we have these enormous amounts of stimulus through various I mean, fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. But how close are we to that? No, I, I, in, in terms of China, in certain sectors, and uh, real estate is much, much talked about, but I think that it is being addressed. The question is, is it being addressed strongly enough? Will we have events? I think we will have many small events down the road, but perhaps not any systemic events. Okay, final question. Uh, the little Asian markets, um, the Asian markets have been really a bit sluggish over the last couple of years. Uh, are they likely to benefit from this uh, liquidity flow around the world? Yeah, but not directly, probably indirectly and later on, because it, same as the analogy in Eastern Europe, it trickles down to the smaller markets, but it takes time. And the question is, will the, uh, will the party last that long that you will have the big, uh, big chunks of money coming there? But also perhaps they don't want 
the boom buzz. They want a trickle flow of, of money coming in, and, and hopefully that happens. But it doesn't always. It's, it's not always that smooth. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Marcus Svedberg definitely uh, says that he still likes Russia. Richard, what do you think would be his view on uh, holders of Russian bonds? <laughs> well, I, I think their view was that Russia had been so bombed out that there was room for a dead cat bounce, certainly in the initial stages, uh, and maybe a slow recovery, certainly if the oil price recovers. Uh, but it's still extremely difficult for that economy to work its way through because it's had such a shock in the last year, year and a half. And it's interesting that Putin is um, talking about economic factors and sanctions and these sort of things in his in his in public his address. Funding. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, let's. Take Take a quick look at the numbers now. Uh, the Nikkei is down four tenths of a percent this morning to nineteen thousand eight hundred and six. Australia's ASX index is down one tenth of a percent to five thousand nine hundred and thirteen, and Sol's Kospi is up one tenth of a percent to two thousand one hundred and forty-two. In currencies, one euro it will buy you one point oh seven U.S. dollars. One U.S. dollar will buy you one hundred nineteen yen, and one pound sterling is currently trading at 11 Hong Kong dollars and 57 cents. The Community Care Fund has relaunched a program to provide a living subsidy for eligible non-public housing and non-CSSA low-income households to relieve their financial pressure. Applications are being handled in phases. Beneficiaries of the living subsidy program launched earlier will receive letters and need not apply again. For details, please visit the fund's website or call 2180-6666. Four or more person households can confirm eligibility or submit new applications from now until August 31st. Come on, baby, light my fire. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and investing in human capital is a wide subject with specific requirements to each industry. As asset management companies innovate, there's a slew of qualities that they look for to define the asset managers of the next generation. Zach Allam, who is the managing director of uh, TARDIS Group, joins us now to discuss. Good morning, Zach. Good morning, Renita. So, Zach, uh, how are requirements for asset managers different today from what they were before? Well, I think, I mean, asset management has been one of the more robust sectors of the financial industry in terms of hiring. Um, We've seen a whole sleuth of new entrants in the market over the last few years. And uh, the bigger firms are diversifying their business and getting bigger. So we are seeing um, new firms coming in, looking for sales, distribution. Once they get that market penetration, phase two would be to bring in investment for a lot of these firms. And we're seeing a lot of that at the moment. Are you seeing investment bankers, you know, switch over to asset management or, you know, are the requirements for an asset manager sort of peculiar unto themselves? Uh, It depends on the role. I think that for sales and distribution, Firms require or clients require more content uh, in sales now. And there is an argument that people from the banking side have a more sort of technical proficiency um, and can provide that more content. So for sort of more product specialist type roles where you are representing proxy, if you like, for a portfolio management team, um, these, these individuals can be quite effective in front of clients. You often see in Hong Kong, though, that, as you were saying a moment ago, that people start with the sales and distribution team uh, and then move on to stage two. But for a lot of these firms, there hasn't actually been a stage two. They haven't actually either got the traction in Asia or they have just decided, well, we're going to keep all our fund management somewhere mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Is that a continuing feature? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the strategy of the firm. I mean, some firms want to bring investment out fairly early on. Um, Old Mutual are doing that. Legal and General are doing that. Um, but firms like M&G, for example, I think are, are quite satisfied with having their investment team in London. It's what works for them. Um, it's where their strengths are, and, and, and they've shown that, that that can work here. But uh, it, does, it may work for different people, but what you often find is if you've got a small team here, maybe relatively junior, they don't have much political power back at home base. So it's quite difficult often for the companies to develop. It's, it's a big problem for newer firms in Asia where the power lies in, in say, the UK or in the US. That sort of political dynamic is, is often difficult. Um, and it's up to the sort of the head of the office here to, to manage that and try and wrestle control away from the mothership. And what about the mix of people in investment management you're seeing? Because, as I understand, there's less need for senior people, which you'd kind of expect in this technological age, um, and more need for compliance, regulation, the, those sort of people. Are you seeing that trend continuing? No, I'm not sure that's the reason for we're seeing less, and that's the reason less need for senior people. I think it's just that with new firms having come in three, four years, years ago, that's when the senior people were hired, the heads of the offices, the heads of sales, heads of investment. We're now seeing these sort of firms filling out um, the ranks, as it were. So as you talk about senior positions, what is the strategy? Is it to grow people up from more of the junior positions here, or is it to bring in people from abroad? Uh, bring people in, but not necessarily from abroad. I think we're arguably seeing a bit of a slowdown in that. Uh, we're seeing Typically now firms wanting to bring people in um, from um, closer. Is this because of expense issues or is it just because, uh, you know, clients, you know, place trust in perhaps uh, locals who understand the culture? Um, partly cost. I mean, expat packages are pretty much something of the past now. Um, schooling is obviously an issue. So certainly for more senior hires, bringing families over is uh, a little bit more complicated. How do you see the battle between Hong Kong and Singapore attracting talent going? Oh, it rages on, but I, I think that people are a little bit more agnostic now. Uh, when I first came here five years ago, certainly for more senior positions, people were very adamant that it had to be either Hong Kong or a Singapore role. Um, but now, typically, uh, people will say, well, it's wherever the better candidate is. And, you know, for your particular clientele, I mean, if, if our listeners were sort of interested in sort of pursuing, uh, you know, a job in this industry, what are you looking for? How many years or what kind of qualifications? <laughs> Basic. <laughs> Very much depends on what the role is. It's, it's kind of an impossible question to answer that, I'm afraid. All right. Well, where can they find out more information? How about that? Um, uh, E-financial careers, I think, probably is a, a very good starting point for people wanting to get into the industry. It's still um, where a lot of people list. There are a lot of firms who, who still hire directly, uh, and a lot, a lot of the uh, postings go there. All right, Zach. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That You're is welcome. Zach Allen. He's a managing director at the TARDIS Group. Well, here we are almost at the end of the show. Let's take another quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down six-tenths of a percent to 19,768. Australia's ASX index is down three-tenths of a percent to 5,899. And Seoul's Kospi also down uh, two-tenths of a percent to 2,136. Gold currently stands at $1,198 an ounce and Brent crude oil at $63.80. So, Richard, here we are once again at the end of the week. Uh, what's your take on what we should be looking out for this weekend and into next week? Well, you know, these markets really don't seem to want to go down at the moment. If you take a longer-term view, you've seen the U.S. do quite well, say, last year. Europe, which was weak last year, is now 
strong, the emerging markets coming back, um, we almost seem to be getting into that stage where nothing is going to go wrong. But you just have to say that very quietly. Oh, yes. All right. We'll leave that on uh, a low tone as we enter the weekend. Thank you for joining us, Richard. Uh, Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management, our Friday co-host on Money for Nothing. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition. And a big thank you to Sandra Lam, our producer. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly fine with a maximum temperature during the day of around 27 degrees Celsius. Currently, the temperature is 21 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 82%. Time for the half-hour news with Sam Butler. With three weeks to go before Britain's general election, five opposition party leaders have taken part in a television debate. The Labour leader Ed Miliband came under fire over his spending plans. The future of the National Health Service and immigration also generated much discussion, as did social housing. The leader of the Green Party, Natalie Bennett, said an ambitious building programme was needed. We've got a huge problem that houses have become primarily financial assets and only secondarily places for people to live. That's why the Green Party wants to build 500,000 homes for social rent, genuinely affordable homes over the course of this parliament. Maybe one of them could be yours. We also want to put a cap on private landlords raising the rent. A prominent Ukrainian journalist has been shot dead in Kiev by masked gunmen. Oles Buzinov was known for his pro-Russian views and had worked for a publication with close links to the government of the deposed President Viktor Yanukovych. His death comes a day after a pro-Russian politician, Oleg Kalashnikov, was killed in a similar attack. Dmitro Kaleba, ambassador-at-large at the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry, explained why these murders might be happening. 